Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with my co-host who is happy <laughs> and good. And his name is Teos Avedia. Hey, Teos. Hey, Sean. How was your weekend? How are you feeling? I am happy and good as well. I have some pretty strong waves crashing outside my window. So if you get any feeling, if you start getting drowsy, it's not because of the content or our enthusiasm. <laughs> no. It's the waves in the background. I'm just imagining salt spray. It sounds wonderful. Well, it's a freshwater lake, but <laughs> Still. we could throw some salt in if you'd, if you'd like. That'd be good. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we have an exciting show for you today. We do. We got lots of news and we have the finale of our look at the 2014 Dungeon Master's Guide. But first, we do have listeners and we do have fans out there who have some things to say. So we're going to get right to our listener corner. And this listener corner uh, comes from Joss via Patreon. Now, I'm going to sum up part of this because it's a very long question, uh, but I want to get to the, the gist of it. So Josh begins by talking about this game he's designing, not professionally, but he wants to do it as professional as possible. And he sort of wants to build it so it could be a board game or be the engine for a role-playing game. And he has questions about playtesting. Uh, so he asked this, weighing the opportunity to refine the mechanics that are being tested versus my own excitement at adding new mechanics and features that I already have ideas for and plans to incorporate when the time comes. How scientific do I need to be to ensure that the changes in gameplay and that experience and fun are due to the most recent mechanics or math adjustments? How concerned should I be about the jumping complexity between each iteration? I want to stay fairly true to a professional game design ethos, even though I do not plan to publish or sell the game. Hmm. A big part of the exercise for me is proving myself, proving to myself that I can make a fun game from scratch and doing a kind of proof of concept that I can, uh, that I can even make a game. But also I am up against the real world constraints of only so much time to test a half-baked game, not having a ton of people to draw on. So, you know, he says he he's played he has a gameplay loop, but he wants to add in some spicy and fun features. So he's struggling a, a, about how many cycles to do, refining, and so on. So this this is an excellent question, and I'm already out of talk juice. So <laughs> Teos, if if you have anything yeah, to yeah, add, I'll, I'll throw some juice. Go ahead. I mean, so this gets to really an awesome kind of universal thing that happens in our brains when we're designing, especially designing new things. Like it's one thing when you know, like you're designing a background, like, okay, there's guidelines in there. There are rules you're not going to break. It's easy. But when you're say, for example, doing the franchise system for Ack Inc. And, you know, and I started with the idea of like, Hey, somehow they should own a business and you could come up with a billion, you know, ways. And, and, and it's very easy to start with one thing and want to add and so on. And so at some point you need to figure out where your focus will be and what is the core of the sensation, the feeling, the experience, the loop that you're going to go with. And it sounds like in particular to our question, you know, he has, Josh has a game loop down and then want to add more to it. And so that's great. That's a great place to start. You've got the basics down. And then the idea is how much more to add to it. And 
when it's for publication is a different, I think, consideration than when it's for yourself, right? For yourself, it's whatever you think you and your friends will enjoy. That's what you add or don't add. And it can be as complex as you want. I'll have super complex stuff in some of my home stuff because I know it and I can figure it out. But selling it, it might not sell well that complex. So I think that's where if you want to pretend that this is for publication, then you want to think, what would an audience really want? And that's the level that I'm going to shoot for, right? How big is this system? How meaty? How easy to add to a game? What do you think, Sean? Yeah, absolutely. If you have the game loop down, uh, that's the important thing. Because that game loop actually tells you who your audience is. Yeah. So once you've established that game loop, then you can decide how much more you want to add to it. And you can gauge each step along the way. You can say, all right, I have this game loop. But within that game loop, there are components that you that, that come in, especially in a role-playing game, right? Mm -hmm. There's the character choices. There's the character options. All of these are feeding into your game loop. So as you design those things that interact with the game loop, you have to keep going back and saying, all right, I designed this game loop for this particular audience, for this particular attention span, for this particular play style, by adding these other things, am I breaking that? You might not be breaking the game itself, mm -hmm. but you might be breaking the play that you had intended in the beginning. Yeah. So it would be like adding a brand new subsystem to a D&D &D 5e game that made all the players keep track of another mm -hmm. thing for their characters, right? Yeah. We're going to add mental hit points. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So so now there's one more thing that all the players have to keep track of. There's one more thing that you could damage. There's one more thing that you would need to possibly create conditions for. Is that more fun for the players for a certain segment of players that definitely would be is it more fun for everyone by having one more thing to keep track of mm -hmm. maybe maybe not so you would need to play that and that's where the play testing comes in you get a group who is used to the normal system add this an addition add this additional system and then say did it add a lot of time to your game did combats go from taking 10 minutes to 20, 10 minutes to 12, or didn't it change the time mm -hmm. at all? Mm -hmm. And then you have to decide, well, did it not change because this group is just super quick and they're so used to the game that keeping track of one more thing wasn't a big deal? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, yeah. how, why, why did it not change or why did it change? So all of those questions come mm -hmm. into play when you start to tinker with the mechanics, even if you don't tinker with that specific game loop. And I think a, a good part to add on to that is the idea of if this is a subsystem or is a kind of place of play, like it's, you know, ship combat, or in this case, it's vehicle combat. How long do you want that to intrude in on the normal rules of D&D? &D? And hopefully it doesn't feel like an intrusion, but the longer and more complicated it can be, the more it can feel like an intrusion to where you're playing a different game and not 5e. So if it's a chase system, if it's a, um, you know, system for downtime, if it's those kinds of things, like if it starts to be its own thing, you want to really make sure that that works. Like I always laugh that there have been a number of attempts to build sort of a game that you can use 
during your D&D game as well, right? So there's been like mm -hmm. tavern brawlers, which was supposed, it was sort of sold to us as a, hey, if you're ever doing a brawl in your RPG game, you can just play this game instead. But it takes an hour to play that game. And people mm -hmm. don't usually want to spend an hour on the brawl. They want to do it in like 15 minutes. But the mm -hmm. game isn't 15 minutes long. And so, it, you know, like sometimes it's too big for what you want out of it. And, and that's, that's a thing to look at, too. And the more that you add complexity, you might be intruding on the rest of the game to the point where your game session is largely this thing, and then maybe that's not satisfying. Yeah. And the last thing to look at is for a board game, you might not have a big storytelling aspect. Mm -hmm. It may just be the mechanics of the board game are what happens, right? When you're playing Carcassonne, mm -hmm. when you're playing... Uh, what's the deck building game that you've Dominion. mentioned before that Dominion, when you're playing Dominion, right? You're not generally you can, mm -hmm. but generally you're not saying, well, I am the ruler of this land and I am going to put a market here, <laughs> uh, right? You just play the card and you, and you go. Yeah. When you're playing a role playing game, when you're making a role playing game, there's that narrative aspect that you need to consider. And so much of role playing game design is figuring out if you have a story happening, then mechanics happening, and then you go back to the story, what's the interplay between those two <laughs> things? Is it quick? Do you want it to be quick? Does yeah. it take a lot of time? Do you want it to take a lot of time? Mm -hmm. And so creating a game where mechanics, uh, creating a game that can be a board game that also is a role-playing game, uh, you have to always keep that in mind. And that's just one more question you have to ask yeah. when you're playtesting to see what your players want in terms of switching from story to mechanics back to story. Uh, so one more yeah. complicating factor thrown in. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good one. I haven't thought of that. It's yeah. great. Yeah, we we do a we do a lesson on this in my class, and it's so hard to do because there are different type types of playtest. If you're playtesting. What, like you said, Teos, if you're playtesting one little piece of the game, that's one thing. If you're playtesting an adventure, that's another thing. If you're playtesting a full system, that's a third thing uh, altogether. So, uh, great question from Josh. And I hope that at least illuminated it uh, a, a tiny bit. Mm -hmm. And next, this isn't one question, it's something that has come up multiple times in different media from different people. And it has to do with the disarm ability that we talked about in a previous episode as we reviewed the Dungeon Master's Guide. You know, we talked about how disarming someone isn't great and it really doesn't add a lot and it's just, it's just blah, sort of. And people met, several people were like, well, Disarm is great. Disarming is simple. I just, and then they go on and talk about how they generally as a player do disarm in, in games. And that's all well and good, but almost every example that was given sort of assumed some rules that aren't there. Mm. So like one example was, Oh, I just disarm someone and then I kick the weapon as as a free as my free interaction. I kick it across the the room. Or well, I just disarm someone and then I just pick up the weapon. Mm -hmm. And if if that's how your game master plays it, 
That's great. The problem is there is not a clarity in the rule about how you interact with things that are on the ground. The only rule we have that really is a rule for disarming is if the attacker wins the contest, the attack causes no damage or other ill effect, but the defender drops the item. It doesn't say where the item gets dropped. That's One might assume that it's in the same square, but it doesn't say. If it is in the same square, there are no rules that say, where can you pick something up? Assuming a five-foot area around you, as the game does, can you just pick up something that's in a separate five-foot square? Maybe. If it's in a separate five-foot square that is occupied, can you? Maybe. When I DM, I rule that you cannot pick something up unless you are in the square that it is in, unless it's an object like a, a desk, then right, or a bed or something. But if the, if there's a combat going on, you cannot interact with an item that's in a separate square than you. You have to occupy that square. So I think as a DM that that's a reasonable rule, which would break almost every <laughs> uh thing that the players were saying that they do with this arm. Uh and the last thing is. Do you want it to work that way? Mm -hmm. Do you want to fighting the lich with the staff of power just to be able to take away the 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 thing that allows the lich to cast the spell? If you are putting win buttons into your game, yeah. why? Right? It it doesn't. It's not good if we're watching a show or reading a book where oh look the. The hero just disarmed the villain again, and now that fight's over. <laughs> oh, in the climax of the story, oh, he just disarmed the villain again, and now the you know the whole story's oh, over. Yeah. Uh, we would hate that. We would hate that as readers. And I have a feeling that if players think about it, they would hate it as players. Mm -hmm. So, yes, it might make sense to you, this disarm thing. Yeah. But there are a lot of rules in there possible rules that need to be clarified before we know whether this works yeah and, and that's really the thing with rules rules do have the job of defending against bad play otherwise you're not doing your job as a designer like you do have to think about it and it's easy to say like well no rules are for reasonable people but they aren't because mm -hmm. reasonable people will do unreasonable things when the rules seem to suggest to them what they can do to be optimal, efficient, smart, good. The rules are constantly teasing you into doing that. Oh, put this and that together. Oh, yeah, you know, you feel smart. The whole game is built on doing that to your brain. You can't then suddenly say, oh, but not that. Like that's, that's no, you, you can't just assume that someone will make those decisions. Your rules must put those lines in place, right? That's, that's the healing spring problem. You can't just assume that people are going to go in and out of it and constantly heal themselves to abnormal amounts. They will. <laughs> Why wouldn't they? Right. And the same thing with disarm. And in third edition, we saw that, right. You know, dual wielding whips and I have two monsters now can't do any attacks at all. And I've thrown all the weapons way behind me. Like if you write the rules a certain way, massive abuse happens. And, and yeah, of course the problem with disarm is what you really want is that when you've got to steal the key from the jailer so you can unlock the door, that is super fun to disarm them, mm -hmm. grab the key, open the, you know, let the beast out or something. That, that's amazing. And you'd like that. 
But if you want to make that rule, you must think, but what happens when they just decide to take the cool item out of every boss monster's hand always? Yep. And you don't want that. And so you've got to write those rules in or they, or they don't exist. And that's where I think disarm, thank God it's <laughs> an optional yeah. rule you know, and isn't right. that useful. So it, it sees, yep. it doesn't see heavy use. And that's how you know it's not broken because people don't run around disarming things in fifth edition. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're playing disarming and dragons, mm -hmm. or sundering and dragons <laughs> instead of dungeons and dragons. And and, and so it's in the optional that. rule, and therefore gets you know it gets house ruled, right? So that's where everybody's yeah. answer. Yes, that's why it's in the optional rule section. So you can say, well, it works fine in my games because here's what I do, and great. But if they want to move it into standard rules, then they will have to contend with all those issues. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so thank you for all that feedback, folks. And now we will get into our news and commentary section, starting with the D&D &D community update. We've It's been a while since we've had one, but we got one uh, just three days ago. And what did this community update tell us, Teos? So they start with a you know image similar to ones they've shown before that has three columns of you know what they already did what's in progress what's in the future and boy this looks like when i turn in my homework assignments you know and i look at all the things i did and and i kind of forget some other stuff that i talked about before and i just put a lot of stuff in the done done column and you know I, I have to remind that this community update page came as part of the whole creator summit ogl discussion mm -hmm. and when you look at this graphic it doesn't feel like that's what it's talking about, <laughs> which is probably by design. It's like we're, we're forgetting that where this all started, you know. So it's a done list that shows, hey, we localized the SRD in four languages, which, yay. Playtest packets, okay. You know, I don't think that was part of the assignment for the OGL conversation. Uh, updating AI guidelines, which was a new thing that came out of nowhere. Uh, revising the Glory of the Giants artwork that used AI and ho holding a closed alpha playtest for the VTT, which again, isn't really kind of, to me, part of what the community update was about, but they're all good things to see done. Mm -hmm. um, on that subject of the VTT, I don't know if you saw this, Sean, but there were a number of videos online talking about having um, alpha tested, and they, they tended to be not very positive. Now, maybe that's because that's what YouTube loves algorithmically, mm -hmm. you know, but... Um, but yeah, I was sort of surprised that that it didn't sound like there was much other than what was seen during the Creator Summit. Um, not a lot of functionality and sort of still the same kind of issues or lack of real substance. So they, they also counted as a done activity the school kit program, which was done quite some time ago. Um, I will say that if you follow the link, you will note that it actually is open for educators to order the 2023 kit through the customer service request portal. I don't think that's been actually advertised. Uh, the previous copies ran out quickly. So if you're running a school program or something that link in our show notes, it's dndwizards.com slash resources slash educators. Mm -hmm. And it seems like a really great program. You can get free access to D&D Beyond for you and your, 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 your students. You can get free books. You can get stuff. So if you're an educator, if you run an after-school program or like a library program or anything like that, feel please check that out because it's, it's a great resource. All right. So we know what's done. So what's in progress? Uh, the core rule books are being updated, Sean. Really? 
yeah, that's it. That's that's, that's what's in progress. And I just I'm like, really? Come on. Like, ah, uh, so uh, and, you know, they said the DMG packet is said to be next. But I just I, I'm there are so many things that came up during the creator summit and as part of those ongoing discussions that I found this to be really, really lacking. Um, we then have an upcoming section. So there will be a play activity survey, which launches September 25th. Um, that's they again, today? What's that? Oh, that's yeah, today? That's, that's now. Yeah, so that mm -hmm. should come out. And you should have it by the time you hear this. Um, mm -hmm. They again say that the 2024 rules will be compatible with 5e and the SRD. The language is similar to some language that's been there before and a little bit of different, different in other ways. And one of the things that's you know questionable about the way the language is parsed is whether they may be saying, are they backing off from saying that the 2024 rules will be in the SRD? Because there's like an or clause in there. And so it'll, it'll be interesting to watch that, whether they decide, you know, hey, no, we're actually not going to put the update into the SRD. That'll, you're just going to make mm -hmm. it compatible. So we'll see. Um, they do still intend to share their internal content policy for inclusivity and dis diversity. I don't know why that's taking so long. Seems really strange because they have to be using it to make these products. Um, and they still say they will pre review previous editions for inclusion in the Creative Commons. That's been taking a really long time. They recap being at San Diego Comic Con and Gen Con. They make it sound all very, very positive. Um, they will be at Big Bad Con and maybe at Geek Girl, Girl Con and PAX Unplugged. They don't show GameholeCon on there anymore, which is weird because a bunch of their staff are there as special guests. I don't know why they would strip that out. Um, and then they say the free lost mine of Fandelver will be retired now that it's part of Fandelver and below. And they will provide an intro to Stormwreck Isle, which is sort of two very short encounters. Um, it's been used at various conventions as a play experience. So on October 6th, you'll see that switch. So if you haven't claimed lost mine and you want to claim it, run and claim it. And then you will get, be getting a very, very short Stormwreck Isle intro once that's over. Okay, so you you've been keeping a close eye on this. You were at the summit uh, in person back when this whole thing launched. What is it that they might have forgotten? <laughs> <laughs> Everything. I mean, there's no mention of any future D and D creator summit, and it, as far as I can tell, uh, there was one Watsi staff member that said um, that it happened, but it didn't happen. There were marketing and partner meetings. There was no creator summit. And so I feel like the summit's been completely forgotten. Like Watsi's just like, okay, we can move on. Um, and yet, if you look at all of the, you can look at the same creator uh, or the the community update webpage, and it says, "quote This event is only the start of our renewed conversations with content creators, not a one and done." It's looking very one and done, Sean. <laughs> uh, uh, do you think that they're having meetings but not public? Do you think that they're talking with different creators in different spaces? So I do know of some reaching out to creators to solicit advice, but it's at least everything I've heard of has been very much focused on sort of things they're going to be doing, platforms where they'll be selling, things like that. It's, it's not like the conversation that took place with the Creator Summit. And it's not like what's been discussed that they've written about. So I, I think they should and they should just come out and say it right. If they don't need any more feedback on these topics, just say it. 
or say what feedback you are looking for or how you're handling it. But in this case, it feels very one and done. And if it isn't, I don't know what the benefit of hiding that would be. So, okay. Uh, what what else have they have they uh, had in the past and not mentioned now? Well, you know, there are many topics that we brought up during the summit that seem to have gone nowhere, right? No mention of translating the basic rules. So they have the SRD, but the basic rules often get forgotten by the team. And those would be really great to translate. And this was an issue that we brought up a lot at the Creator Summit. No mention of localization of the D&D Beyond interface so that someone who speaks Spanish or any of the other ma even major languages could actually operate D&D Beyond effectively. Um, accessibility was be was brought up for D&D Beyond, and you don't see much mention of that. There was sort of some mention of it around this new maps that we'll talk about, but but nothing actually there for the larger interface. Uh, the third-party creator marketplace isn't on the roadmap, and I don't object to that, but I just <laughs> it's not there. You one would think that this would be a big thing. Um, no mention of retaining dndwizards.com articles or creating a new place for the studio blog or renewing, renewing those com communications. Nothing around trying to prove partner or freelance relations or creating an on-ramp for designers, which is something that I hear a lot of people continually talking about. Like that is not an issue where people are feeling like, yes, everything's better, um, but there's no acknowledgement of it. Um, We've asked for things like, you know, give us those PDF versions of products and the latest Monster, Monsters Compendium, which we even pay for. Again, no PDF version. Um, digital releases can just disappear or they're solely tied to D&D uh, &D Beyond account. So that's a problem. And no word of feature parity between the D&D &D mobile app and the desktop, which was another issue that we'd brought up because you get an entirely, well, not entirely, there are a number of features that you can do on mobile, such as searching within a particular product that you don't have on the desktop. And they said they would look at that, but that just seems to be all off the radar. Okay. Interesting. We'll see if some of these things are lost mm -hmm. to time or didn't <laughs> just don't have a focus or they're mentioned later. Yeah. Uh, It'll, it'll be interesting to keep an eye on not just that, but everything that's happening in this lead up to the 2024 book release. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned our next bit of news already that they have released 25 new monsters for the Monstrous Compendium set in Eldrain. Uh, so these are uh, monsters in the world of Eldrain, briefly described. Similar releases have been free. But this one on D&D Beyond is $5.99. Um, the monsters range from CR 1 half up to 18. And eight of them are fey, but they all have heavy fey, mm -hmm. fey themes. Uh, I didn't buy this, but I've heard people talking about it. What was your thought on this uh, release? Yeah, I mean, I'm hearing positive things. And I looked at it and I enjoyed it. If if you like the concept of, of sort of Eldraine is a world of storybook castles, fairy tales that was then invaded by the Pyrexians and now has this terrible wilderness and a sort of undead themed bad people who are trying to create like horrible nightmare world. <laughs> so that, those are the mixes going on. So we get creatures like the ginger brute, which is a gingerbread man type, you know, person creature that when you destroy it, you can eat it <laughs> to heal up. 
there's the candy cane based sweet tooth horror, which if it takes fire damage will release a mesmerizing caramelized smell. That is pretty neat. Uh, a many headed goose, a snapping hydra, which is actually a many headed turtle, giant wolves that can smell magic and they can reaction teleport bite against a caster, several fey knights and evil undead knights, devious witches. Overall, I thought, you know, most of the monsters had something kind of cool to them that I appreciated reading from a design perspective. Um, they, you know, they have the usual things of they could maybe hit harder. Um, you're not sure that this encounter would be, you know, uh, a challenge using the statistics as they are, but it would certainly be interesting. And so I like that. But there is no PDF or print version available. It's only on D&D Beyond and sort of that you know, web version uh, with all of its uh, lack of glory, I will say. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me because, I mean, you wrote an article yourself about sales, right, uh, recently. And it got me thinking about how cheap it is to make digital content and how expensive it is to make print content. Yeah. And if you can take something like this that you might have to charge twenty dollars for if you made it into a book. Mm-hmm. You can charge five ninety nine here. Make more, probably more profit, and you know the drawback is people who want a physical copy of it can't have it. People who want a PDF version aren't going to be able to get it. So I wonder if this is like an experiment. And to see what the what the threshold w- would be, especially as you hope to bring in new D and D Beyond subscribers and customers. Yeah, I mean, it's just my my sorrow is always down the road, right? Where I can pull up tele- Temple of Elemental Evil uh, from AD and D, and I can pull up Four E Dungeons and Dragon magazines, even though they were on a digital location, PDFs were available, and so I could get that. Uh, I can even pull the Spelljammer Monstrous Compendium, Compendium 5e PDF because they released both PDF and D&D Beyond. But now, all D&D Beyond, I have to do a crappy print out of my browser to save it as a PDF so that someday when this vanishes, because that's how time works, <laughs> you know, all I'll have is that PDF. But a lot of people will say, wasn't there some creature that had a cool, like, it burned and it made a good smell that charmed you and, you know. I just don't want to see things lost to the uh, sands of time like that, but we'll see. Mm-hmm. Okay. We did, by they the way, also Sean, had Yeah. Yeah. They, they also put out a set of 17 level one pregens based on the Baldur's Gate 3 characters, which I thought was very smart. Uh, hoping to capture that group uh, who are very, very heavily into Baldur's Gate 3 right now. Mm-hmm. We also got a surprise on D&D Beyond. A, one might say, delightful surprise. Yeah. Something called maps. Not just maps, but a completely unrelated to the 3D virtual tabletop, <laughs> 2D virtual tabletop. Uh, it's in its alpha state, and it's drawn comparisons to the initial version of Owlbear Rodeo, if you're familiar with that where you can drop in maps from D&D products, including ones that are pre-built in the maps section of D&D Beyond, upload your own, 
add tokens from D&D Beyond Monsters, link a campaign to it to pull in images, uh, use the tokens if you have characters uh, attached to your campaign, uh, link character sheets, show roles in the map's game log. Uh, there was a Fog of War tool available, and I only spent about five minutes looking at this, and I was so happy. Yeah. This is mm-hmm. what I would have wanted 10 years ago. <laughs> the, I this Because as I was going through all these different tools, Fantasy Grounds, World 20, and all the ones that were available at that time, all I was thinking was, I just want to pull in a map mm-hmm. and add tokens to it that people can move around the board. That That's all I want. I don't want anything else. I don't yeah. need anything else. That's just me. But and And here it is 10 years later, but by golly, we've got it. Yeah, I mean, it is really interesting. It, it, I mean, yeah, it, you know, you could do this in map tools. You could do it in so many different places back in time. But I think what makes this really fascinating is not its functionality, though it seems to work generally pretty well. Sometimes you have to refresh the browser for no particular reason. But um, it's that it uh, it's going to be, I think, pretty compelling in that when you now buy Fandelver and Below, well, all those maps are available in this maps VTT. And so you and if you run a campaign, you can link your uh, characters and, and that are in that campaign to this. And then they can roll on the character sheet and see all those shiny digital dice they may have purchased. And then uh, like I think I have I, I got a bunch of them free. Thank you. Andy Beyond. So like when I roll a 20. Thumberchad the dragon comes and eats the 20. <laughs> yeah. So as a player, I get to enjoy that. No one else sees that. But then on the game log, they'll mm-hmm. see that I rolled a 20. Um, and if you're the DM and you want to use the, the encounter builder, you can from there link that and roll through the monsters. Um, and if you didn't do that, you could link your campaign to Discord with the Avray bot. And then when you roll using the Avray bot, that would show the results of the monster rolls in the game log. So there are a couple of different ways to do that. Um, it's not amazing, you know, like the fog of war sitting there trying to get every little square is kind of annoying, but they they have a whole change log of things that are going to be changing. Um, and I did a walkthrough video, which, you know, a lot of folks have, have clicked on. So there, I think there's a high degree of interest in seeing where this goes. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. And it makes me wonder how how necessary the 3d virtual tabletop is <laughs> yeah there uh, there are obviously people that would love it mm-hmm. but i am of an an audience where i don't need all that fancy stuff i i still want to tell stories verbally and interact in that way and so it's it's it Obviously, yeah. we were we were shocked when this came out because no one that I knew was expecting this uh, yeah. to, to drop, and and then there it was. Yeah, I'm surprised it got improved approved eternally. But I think it is smart to do this. I think it is actually very good to to start pulling people into this idea of like, hey, live in D and D Beyond, use maps in D and D Beyond, and hey, then when we have the VTT, we'll try to talk you into that one. Um, I, I share your concerns, and I think a lot of people do, as to whether you really want a 3D VTT. I think that there, I'm in general, even the Albert Rodeos type approach or Roll20 or Fantasy Grounds, 
there is something about when you use miniatures as a placeholder, even when you have immersive things like Dwarven Forge terrain, you still really know that it's representative and that your imagination and what the DM is describing and the player is describing occupies the real space of the game. Mm-hmm. And there's something about looking at the screen that I think really colors to me the experience. I don't know why it functions differently in my brain, but it does. It's like when you read a book and you imagine the characters and you see the movie and you can't unsee the movie version, right? Something mm-hmm. about the the screen does that to me in a way that minis on the table don't. I can play with minis on the table and I see a reality in my mind that isn't what's on the table, but mm-hmm. feeds off of it, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we'll keep an eye on that to see updates and how it may change people's view of D&D Beyond uh, and, and how it's used. We have... Episode one of Acquisitions Incorporated Season Two. Then they did a Kickstarter for it. The new season has now dropped. We have Chris Perkins back DMing the group through a very fun adventure with a nice cool set in the background. Uh, I have not seen it yet, but I w- have been waiting with anticipation to see it. And now I will get my chance. I assume you've you've seen a bit of it, Teos. I did watch it. I enjoyed it greatly. It's not super long. It's a, it's a nice episode. The set looks nice. They they um it, it feels a little bit like that one Matt Mercer did with the uh, Waterdeep campaign where uh, they would they kind of add sound effects, you know, and they do Chris's voice when he speaks in Goblin. It'll get a little sound effect added to it. Stuff. It's kind of fun. Um, but yeah, it was a great episode. I really enjoyed it. Awesome. And finally, our creator and crowdfunding news, we have Alan Tucker, friend of the show, releasing The Eye of Everywhere. If you want to mix your chocolate and your peanut butter, Alan adds sci-fi to your 5e or your Pathfinder game. This has new classes and ancestries, new factions, lore, gear, and a lot more. And you can go to Kickstarter and look up The Eye of Everywhere. Awesome. That is our news section for today. And now we are going to get into our main topic here on Mastering Dungeons, Chapter 3 of Part 3 of (laughs) Chapter 9, Dungeon Masters Workshop, and hopefully our final episode looking at the 2014 DMG. And so here we go. We are going to dig in here where we left off, which is creating a monster and you know a little bit about this teos uh <laughs> but the the chapter says part of the dnd experience is a simple joy of creating new monsters and customizing existing ones if for no other reason than to surprise and delight your players with something they've never faced before and i went yes mm. yes book that is exactly what dm should do and you should tell us exactly how to do it yeah, absolutely. It's it's a great dream. And uh, the problem is that then it kind of falls apart. And I think it falls apart on two levels, but but let me maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. So what what the DMG does now is it gives us, hey, here's two ways to create a monster um, or maybe three. First, you could just modify a monster. And this is very smart. Very good that it does this. It says, you know, 
if you're gonna uh, make something like you want, you know, a tentacled ogre, well, you can just take the ogre stat block and then add like some octopus attacks and but use the damage, and now you're set, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the- and 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 that's that's smart. I mean, reskinning is the best way to create a new monster. It is just you need you need a a uh, big brooding bartender, not bartender, a uh, bouncer mm-hmm. at a tavern. Just take the ogre stat block. There, yeah. you have a big brooding. Uh, just change the size to medium. Mm-hmm. All set. Fine. Yeah, yeah, and, and modifying a monster. You know, there's just a lot that that works so well to just smash two together, create one, but add the things from another. It's really great. Um, but then it says, you know, okay, let's say you want to create a monster. You've got two options. You can do a quick creation or create it whole cloth. And again, I kind of start by going, yeah, this sounds good. But mm-hmm. then it kind of goes through a sort of interesting process. And this is a case where it tries to kind of prescribe science, but it doesn't really feel scientific. <laughs> Um, And they're very similar, these two ways. And essentially what you're doing is you're going through a series of steps. And as you do them, there is a calculation taking place determining the defensive CR, challenge rating of the monster, and the offensive one. And then you want those, the average is what your CR should be. And then the kind of understanding is, well, if you didn't like that answer, then you need to change things. To, so that the CR goes back to where you want it to be. And I think this, it doesn't quite know what it's doing here in that it's, I guess, trying to be flexible that you might say like, hey, I want to create a, um, uh, you know, vampiric octopus. And so I just start making things. And then I go, oh, look, this is the CR ended up being. And maybe I like that or I don't. But I think more often than not, we have a CR in mind, and I think you should probably just embrace that and use that as the default and then speak to the other. Um, and, and so in that case, really what you're often doing is you're saying, well, I'm trying to make a CR for a giant, and I start at it, and then I realize that it's really like CR2, and now I've got to go back and tweak back and forth. And regardless of what you're doing in this process, whether it's the short process or the long process, and the long one is just more convoluted, is that you are referring to a table, and the table gives you some possible values. So it'll say, you know, here's the hit point range of a CR4 monster. But then it also tells you, here's how you calculate your hit points. And that calculation is based on the constitution score and it's based on the hit dice and those things are somewhat arbitrary in some ways or they're sized based and so all of it can be that you're just sitting there endlessly churning out hit point calculations or you can just take the table mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you're working as a freelancer uh, you can have some arguments about which process is viable and there's some interesting steps. There are steps where I don't want to get too in the weeds but there are steps that really require that you calculate a certain way and then there are steps that give you the option of calculating it or using the table. And at the end of it, you come up with what you think might be a reasonable monster, and you compare it to something that Wizards made, and you go, these aren't the same. Mm-hmm. And if I calculate the CR of the Wizards of the Coast monster, I'll come up with a different number than if I had followed this technique. Yep. And it's the technique they told me to use. 
And it's because Wizards has, as they've now admitted, their own internal process that they use where they do things like say like, well, because it's, you know, in, inflicting conditions, then we change this or because it has this passive thing, we're going to value it this way. And so it all gets knocked off. And what it actually often does is that monsters that are official tend to be a little soft for player for players and DMs because of this process. So we wrote a lot about this in the Forge of Foes book when we were creating it and, and tried to help DMs sort of make the most of this system and revise it. But this is a system that we hope we'll see updated in 2024 because it doesn't really quite work. <laughs> mm-hmm. What I've noticed, everything you said, yes. And what I've noticed is now we have this thing called D&D Beyond, which mm-hmm. is owned by Wizards of the Coast, that has a monster builder in it. Now, the monster builder doesn't do any calculations for you Mm -hmm. like this. You just sort of put in what you want and it prints it out in a nice format. How difficult would it be for wizards to just add some numbers behind the scenes so that if you give these damage attacks, if you give this armor class, if you give these hit points, it says, hey, you know what? Based on our calculations, this is a CR5 monster. Yeah. And there you go. Uh, Yeah. Now, D&D Beyond wasn't a thing when this book came out, so that wasn't possible. But the technology has increased in its availability and its complexity to the point where this doesn't even need to be in the book anymore. (laughs) That's true. Uh, You could just say, go to D&D Beyond, go to our website, and build your monster there. Maybe. I mean, you know, I compare this to the fourth edition DMG, which has a number of interesting things in, in, in its final chapter, one of which is build monsters. And because of the way 4th edition approached the math of monsters, it's super easy. So you can just really say, like, I'm making a CR, the equivalent of CR2 or level 2 monster, and boy, here's my stat ranges, and it's all very transparent, and here's how hard it should hit, and here's all this. And you come up with a monster that looks like something right out of the book, and it's not convoluted. It's very fast, very easy. And in fact, you know, one of the things that I remember with great, you know, really enjoyment, it makes me really happy to think back on these memories of fourth edition blogs where people would come up with all kinds of monsters and share them because it was so easy to do it. And you Mm -hmm. could do it without an online tool. You know, they had online tools and and official tools, but you could just do it so easily based on these rules in the DMG. And you know what's different between, well, lots are is different between fourth and fifth, but one of the things spells Mm, spells and the way that they work Mm. the way that they worked in first and second edition and the way they work in fifth edition which is very similar throws a big monkey wrench into the power curve into storytelling into so much about this game speaking of which the next section is creating a spell uh, we are told to use existing spell guidelines, and then we get a table that shows the damage per spell level for either one target or for multiple targets. Uh, so you can say, according to this chart, a first level spell, if it's got one target, should do this much damage, multiple targets, this much damage. The, the interesting thing is, again, their own spells don't follow this chart, yeah. right? It says for third level spells, multiple targets, it should be 66. What does a fireball do? (laughs) 
8d6. Uh, so mm -hmm. it's just, it's, it's, uh, we can, we can discuss why, right? Yeah. There might be reasons why one might do more, one might do less, one might cause some conditions where another doesn't, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, it is funny. And the one thing they say uh, is that a cantrip shouldn't offer healing. Mm -hmm. And in a very brief uh, section for creating spells, they call that out specifically. Mm. And it's funny because so many times I've had game designers working for me or working with me or, you know, mm -hmm. vice versa, who um, who try to come up with this cantrip that heals. Mm. And so I have to, first of all, point to this and say, see, don't do it. And then, well, why? And I'm like, let's think about this. Mm. If you have a cantrip, how often can you cast it? If you have uh, unlimited healing, why do you need rests at all? Mm -hmm. Okay, now we're getting there. Yeah. So good, yeah. good on wizards for putting that in here. That's smart. Go, go, go the next distance and say, hey, here's why, because it may come into play in a mm -hmm. different thing, like say a spell that lasts for eight hours that you could just continue walking through. Uh, <laughs> Uh -huh. then you would be aware of that as well. I love creating a spell because the, the guidelines uh, of damage and healing really work well for situations you're going to run as a DM. And, mm -hmm. and, and I love this, just like we talked about the trap table that talks about trap damage. It's another way of looking at it. Hey, here's the kind of damage that should be thrown around for various things. And this you know, it can be both from monsters or PCs. So if you're designing some device the characters could use and they could be flinging around third level spells, well, hey, you could make it the equivalent of a third level spell or mm -hmm. have an arcane engine to which they pour spell slots into and hey, they get this kind of effect out of it. And now you know how hard or good to make it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then sort of following logically from creating spells is creating magic items. And they give good advice about tweaking because like with spells, like with monsters, if you can tweak something as opposed to create it whole cloth, the chances are you're going to create something that's within the balance range that's expected by the game. Yeah. So they talk about taking a flame tongue, a flaming sword, and do electric do lightning damage instead of fire damage or take a property from one item and move it on to another item so that you get a headband of protection instead of a ring of protection. And uh, if you create a new magic item, we get a table with the max bonus that you should get or the max spell level for each type of rarity. And then we get uh, talked about attunement and why it's there and what sort of items should re uh, require attunement? And that's attunement good. Attunement isn't, yeah. It just, it's no. so, they, they could have skipped something like that, you know, because it's a, a new device and they could have forgotten how important it is, but they didn't. They were thorough and they said, here's what attunement's trying to do and why you need yep. to, when you should consider it, when an item needs it, right? Yeah. So all that was, was good stuff. And all of this, you know, you could have whole chapters on just this and very in-depth rules and advice. But I think for the situation that this book was in, I'm fine with it just giving that, yeah. that basic stuff. 
Uh, what do you think about the creating new character options? Because this is sort of important for a lot of DMs. It is. I mean, in some ways, I'm surprised they went this far into it, you know, to really tell you how to do this. Now, previous DMGs have done this, so it's not like this was uh, unexpected completely, but but it, it's a big deal. And, you know, they do say like, hey, really think through why you're doing this. And add, they give you a whole bunch of questions that you should ask yourself, which is good that they do, because it's not insignificant to say, hey, I'm going to have a new race, sub race, whatever. Um, and they do kind of two things that are that are nice. Uh, they give you the broad advice on how to think through what you're doing. And then they give you an actual example, the Asimar, of an example of a new race and some explanation of how it was derived. Um, we also get a Ladrin as an example sub race. And they do this for the next pieces, modifying a class and creating a background, you know, they talk through these uh, examples of, of what it looks like. And that, that's a good way to do it. Mm -hmm. They even go as far as giving the spell point variant right. for uh, for that, which yeah. you know, is <laughs> it shows their awareness of what many DMs do with their rules. Right. Yeah. Lots of DMs will just buy the, the adventure, run the adventure and be happy. But there is a high level and I would say an increasing level of their consumers who want to be deeper into game mm -hmm. design for their campaigns. And so giving this and showing it right up front sort of cuts off people badly coming up with their own spell point systems and making a lot of mistakes doing that yeah no it's really smart it, it, it's and because otherwise you, you you will like you said people will guess at it and mm -hmm. and they will write this version their own version of these rules for how a class exists and then they'll use it to validate their design but it's like a game of telephone every time it's a little off and someone might copy that and go a little further off so having a route that you can turn to and say this is what dnd says is valuable. I'm, I'm, I'm curious whether they will have this in the 2024 rules, and if so, will they tweak it a bit? Right, that would be fascinating to see. Yeah, psionics is a thing that comes up constantly, especially for players who have played in previous editions that have psionics, whether they were horribly implemented, like <laughs> first edition, or and second, yeah, and second, or you know integrated into the basic system uh to function in a game loop yeah. like it has been uh in other editions and they, they don't mention it here but that's another thing that i was wondering if they would have but didn't mm. yeah that's a good point so we, we hear about class uh race and sub race and then creating a background I sort of wish they'd started with that because yes. that's that's like the first step of the game design ladder is, okay, give me a background. And they actually go into quite good detail about yeah. how to do so. Thinking about it first in terms of where it fits in your world. Why are you doing this? We have all of these great ones out there. Why are you creating one for your world? That's Answer that question first. If mm -hmm. you can answer that question, then everything that comes along after will uh, will follow more smoothly. So suggest personal characteristics. Those are the traits, ideals, 
bonds and flaws that we see in the game. Assign proficiencies in languages. Mm -hmm. You can replace one with the other, but make them fit into your world. Starting equipment, right? This sort of low-level, easy-to-concept thing. Uh, and then settle on the background feature, which is the hardest part. So do that last and figure out what game benefits it has. And it says right... It says right out, a background feature should avoid strict game benefits, such as a bonus to an ability check or an attack mm -hmm. roll. Instead, it should open options for role-playing, exploring, and interacting with the world, which, surprisingly enough, they break themselves <laughs> when they come up with the backgrounds for things like Dragonlance, where they start attaching feats to backgrounds. And, and, um, and how inconsistent they are about when they have a feet as the feature and they just say mm -hmm. and we're done or they have a feat but then also a feature right even mm -hmm. in recent design and it's like wait why did this one get a feat and another thing i'm really confused and then i'm supposed to somehow at the table tell the person who's playing a criminal oh hey you know just take one of these three feats <laughs> and that'll be the yeah. same it's it's really yeah it's fascinating and i, I will see you know if they do create these rules examples in the future how do they strike that balance you know are, are all feats the same because in theory starter feats should all be balanced so it shouldn't be like you have one background with a feat plus more but the feature does give it a lot of color that a feat does not so i don't know yeah it, yeah, backgrounds were one of those things that i loved because since they didn't give such powerful player options people could get fun with them people could oh i know that i'm playing a cleric but i'm going to be the criminal just just because i know it doesn't fit perfectly right. but now if you're giving feats along with them people are going to be like well i need that feat for this class and then you, you start getting into the the optimization route, which yeah. cuts down on some of the fun role playing and character building that having just a non mechanical sort of uh, element to the game brought. Well, and all of this rests also on how backgrounds are in theory, these sort of iconic choices of the type of person you might be, but in fifth edition clearly don't cover all of those angles. Um, but then also we are told you can customize your own. And we hear that again with the 2024 rules. And it's like, well, but why then are we doing all of this work if we're supposed to create our own? And, and that's an, those are at odds. And so I think DM advice would be nice if the DM advice could explain that, assuming there is a suitable explanation for why why am I creating something for my world if anybody can create that already? And, and so there, there should be a good answer to that for why you need this iconic presence and then how the feet and feature <laughs> fit into that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so technically that's the end of the chapter, mm -hmm. but it's not the end of the book because we have appendices. And so let's take a quick spin through those appendices. We have Appendix 1, Random Dungeons, a series of tables and steps 
walking through the creation of a dungeon layout and then tables to help populate them. This is a classic thing that went all the way back to uh, AD&D Dungeon Master's Guides. And I, I like the concept, but I don't love it. <laughs> Why? To, to me, having designed a lot of adventures and a lot of dungeons, you it's almost like using AI to start something and yeah. then finishing it yourself. Mm -hmm. The, the important steps start right at step one mm -hmm. and you should have a focus, even if it's a theme, even if it's a word, even if it's something and every step along the way should refer back to that. It, it's totally fine to do this. There's nothing wrong with this. And I could have a fun time rolling a random dungeon and running it. Uh, but if I was actually sitting down to create something meaningful and and that I wanted to capture the imagination of DMs and players, I would not want to do this. Yeah. I mean, imagine if this system had something like step one is not, you know, your starting area. Step one is what is your starting goal? And it's something like, you know, end the ritual on time. And it could say like, we're, we're, we're going super trope here, right? You know, mm -hmm. get to the end and stop the villain from doing the ritual. Uh, find the treasure that's hidden somewhere. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have a clue. Uh, stop the other adventuring party. Um, slay the great beast that's you know organizing all these foes some other kind of things like that and then when you're going through these random things one other thing to do is check did you reach the goal is the goal found here and if it is then you can now have the fun with that and that would make this a little better of a marriage of story and form maybe yeah yeah I, I, but it's as its own fun little thing no yeah. no problem at all uh, appendix B, monster lists. We get monsters by environment and monsters by CR. Teos, you made a, an astute note about this. I mean, they're they're useful. I love this kind of stuff, but it's quickly outdated. Uh, you have an update in Xanathar's, but you know, ideally, every monster book would just kind of add this as they come out, so that you always have it. Or maybe even the official Dungeons and Dragons site could have one central list, right, where it pulls it all together so you could always roll on it or refer to it and print it out, you know, give you a little PDF that you could download. That'd be really make it even more useful because as soon as you have new monsters, you want this, you want to use a table that includes them. Mm -hmm. And it's good advertising, right? I can't count how many times I haven't bought haven't purchased something on D and D beyond. And so I do a search of mm. CR five undead with fire. And I go, oh, oh, there's only one thing. Okay, click on it. Oh, it's in a book I haven't purchased yet. <laughs> All right, here I purchased the book. Um, mm -hmm. You can even purchase that individual monster if you wanted. But right. uh, you know, it, it's just it's good advertising. And now, hopefully, technology will allow that to happen uh, more easily. Yeah. Appendix C maps. As it says, they give you some maps, not a lot of explanation, not a lot of fan fanfare around it. It's just, here's some maps. Yeah. 
They're beautiful. Not you as, know, they're some of my yeah. favorites. Like they are really, really nice, mainly from fourth edition. They're great. Uh, and I like that. I like that this is here. You know, in the old AD&D, we would look at kind of the couple of maps they provided, which were very simple, old school maps, black and white. And we would just pour over those as details. And so it's fun that these are here for for that same kind of reason, just to create your, give you ideas and, and, and foster imagination. Yep. Yep. And last but not least, the famed Appendix D, which is an update of Appendix N. From the AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide, listing inspiration and resources for Dungeon Masters. Uh, it ranges widely. We get a lot of sort of books on writing and storytelling, like Stephen King's On Writing or Janet Burroway's Writing Fiction. Mm. Uh, then we get some specific RPG-type books like Grimtooth Traps, Robin Laws's Hamlet's Hit Points. Uh, overall, a very solid list. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was reading it and I was like, "There's no, there's almost no fiction <laughs> here." What? And then I remembered, "Oh yeah, there was also an appendix in the uh, player's handbook that covered all of the fiction that could be inspiring or have inspired uh, the designers of Fifth Edition Dungeons and Dragons." Anything you would have added to this list, Teos? Ah, uh, I didn't see this question. Yeah, that's a good thing. Um, I'm very happy to see Hamlet's hit points on there. I would I, things that I keep on my list. Uh, some of the cold press, cold press guides are really good. Um, I would for sure add to it. And I don't know the name of it. Well, the easiest way to say it would be Dresden Files RPG. But but there's a, a the specifically the section on how you can create a a campaign collaboratively and there is a third party either low cost or free on drive through piece that pulls that together that does it really well um fates often drawn off of that guide just that idea to me has been really game changing and, and helps a lot of how i see games and campaigns mm -hmm. cool there is a publisher called engine publishing that have done a lot of books on game mastering, preparation, storytelling. Um, Never Unprepared is one of those books by Phil Vecchione, uh, which talks about you know running a campaign and prepping, but not over-preparing and the, you know, the best ways to get all of that stuff that sometimes can get out of hand for new game masters, especially. Um, so if you and there's a whole bunch of books, some of them are like by one or two people. Some of them draw like the mm -hmm. Cobalt Press books do draw up on right. a wide range of designers. Um, and you go to enginepublishing.com to see the books that are there. So we've we've got through the book. We have finished <laughs> the Dungeon Master's Guide. Overall thoughts. Yeah, so I did two things when because I got to the end and I thought the same thing like, well, you know, how do I feel about this and and, and kind of what's missing? What should it be? Um, you know, and I what I did was I looked at 4E because mm -hmm. it's one that I often feel like, wow, this is my Dungeon Master's Guide. This is really good, um, and it has a lot just in this kind of equivalent last chapter. It has quick rules for increasing and decreasing a monster. Monster templates, right? Make, make any monster a lich. Make any monster a battle champion. Make the Yuan-Ti lich a wizard, right? So you can add a class template to it. 
much more straightforward way to make monsters, a system for creating NPCs using templates for classes, how to design your own house rules, specifically saying these are your house rules, um, random encounters, how to design tables or create an encounter deck. And then a couple of things that I was like, oh, yes, of course. Falkrest, a base town in the new setting of Nentir Vale, a few pages on the Nentir Vale, Kobold Hall, a short adventure with the Skull Skull game and all that. It's a great introduction to fourth edition. And then a really good index. And those are all things that I'm like, oh, wow, I would have liked to have seen that here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's funny because I think overall, people would say the fourth edition Dungeon Master's Guide is better than the fifth. However, I think most people would say the fifth edition introductory sort of box set thing mm-hmm. was better than the fourth edition intro yeah. uh, to that, which was keep not keep on the borderlands. Uh, what, am, what am I thinking of? Or is that third edition? The, um, the uh, no, it was fourth edition. It was uh, something. Our... Uh, Oh well. Oh yeah. I oh I know the fourth edition adventure. Yes, the the, the thing box. with yeah. Calorel. The yes. thing with Calorel. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. People like detested that as a starter yes. adventure. Yes. And they like this one better. And I overall, I am willing to give this Dungeon Master's Guide a pass on all the shortcomings that we've mm-hmm. talked about. Because it was, because fifth edition was a very different beast from third and fourth. Uh, third and fourth were much more mathematically complex games, much more deep uh, and math heavy, and there was a rule for everything. And it could basically, both of those editions could basically run themselves if you really, really wanted to, because the rules were so strict. Fifth edition went back to this first edition and second edition idea of rulings, not rules, Mm -hmm. where third and fourth were definitely rules, not (laughs) rulings. Yeah. And that for game masters who only played third or fourth edition they were they could have been overwhelmed by that change so i think this book had to go back and cover some things that maybe you and i would not need covered and i would have hated to have have had to write this this dungeon master's guide uh because I don't know if I would have done it, even the justice that that was done here. No, uh, you're right. I agree with that. We are critics. You know, we're trying to deliberately be analytical of this work and think about how we, but we have the benefit of looking at it. And if you had to create it, to, to aspire to do it as well as it is, uh, you'd be fortunate to pull that off. Um, I agree with you. I, 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 would, I would emphasize that fifth edition, you know, looking at it and talking to like Rob Schwab when we had him interviewed or uh, in messages with other designers as I've done this series, you know, they were 
they weren't sure what fifth edition would be or how it would be received. Mm-hmm. And that sounds weird that you'd make a product that you don't know what it is or, or how the audience will respond, but you, but they didn't, you know, I mean, D and D wasn't such an interesting time. And, and, and the concept that largely it was going to be based off of licensed sales rather than they didn't know that it was a small team. They didn't know how big D and D would be after that as an RPG. And they really hit gold, right? And so then it's easy to want the DMG to do so much. But I think they were writing a book that was very flexible for lots of possibilities and that you might be the person that made a lot of your own content rather than the mm-hmm. company. So they, they were they were trying to hedge their bets and, and that was probably a very smart thing to have done. They clearly didn't hurt sales. You know, the DMG still sells well, even if it doesn't get as much utility as you'd like. Um mm-hmm. I find myself, Sean, thinking about the 2024 uh, sort of table of contents, the chapter list that that Chris Birkin shared. And, you know, overall, it's things you'd expect. And they're sorted a little differently, as we talked about during these series. But they said chapter eight is, is a surprise to be revealed later and a poster map of something yet to be re- revealed. And I wonder if they're going to add a rule, ba- a world back in um, the way that, you know, I was looking at 4E and saying, oh, yeah, like Nentir Vale. Like, I wonder if they would put in a new setting or Nentir Vale or Greyhawk or something like that as something that DMs can use to really kick off their game. That would make sense because this is a book that some people are going to say, I already have it. Mm -hmm. So you need to put something in that is new, that's different, that's exciting. And that would be something. What would be yeah. really cool, this is, I just just popped in my head. What would be really cool is to say, hey, here's a new world and you help us build it. Mm-hmm. Here's the map. Here's some things about the world. DM's Guild's open. <laughs> Do your thing, folks. Yeah. That would be yeah. really cool. That'd be really cool. And then have a then have a contest. Yeah. And pay $100,000 to the winner. Mm-hmm. And $10,000 to the podcast that came up with the concept to begin with. So did you say, you said 20,000, right? I did. I said 20,000. There was a garbling on my recording. (laughs) (laughs) That's the good stuff right there. So we have finished. We did it. We got through the dungeon masters guide next week, folks. We have a surprise for what we are going to cover. We're not going to tell you what it is basically because we don't know yet. But it will be very exciting, as everything on Mastering Dungeons is exciting. And with that, we will say thank you. I will say thank you to Teos for shepherding us through this Dungeon Master's Guide uh, coverage. Thank you, Sean. And uh, Yes, and I will say thank you to all our listeners. And I will say thank you specifically to those people who support this Patreon that keeps us on the air. Uh, You... Yes, you. If you've been listening to our show and you're digging what we say and you're you're having fun getting a couple you know, hour and a half or so of content once a week, you can go to our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash mastering DND. Or is it mastering dungeons? No, I always forget. Mastering DD. Mm-hmm. There we go. Mastering D. I ask every week and he tells me and I forget again. Mastering DD. And for just three dollars a month. You can help us out uh, to support our show, and we do really, really do appreciate that. We appreciate the people doing it right now, our Master of Dungeon supporters, our Master of Realm supporters, and these Master of the Multiverse patrons who do it 
right. Anonymous, you know who you are. Thank you. Steve Axtelm. Whoops, I'm reading the Master of Realms list. Hey, look at that. Steve and Anonymous, you got a little extra. Let's Special. do it. Uh, Dave yeah. Bastinson, Sterling Bates of Nexus Game Theory, Alan Bangs, uh, Bianca Bickford, P.L. Caldwell, Chumple Stiltskin, Calagupathy, <laughs> Coagulopathy, there we go, there. Lucas Cockerham, Randy Farmer, the old school DM, Scott Gregson, Hyperlexic, Megan J, David K, Gene Lobert, Cast Party, CastParty.com, Trey Sandlin, John Steele Skelton, Jeff Stevens at Jeff Stevens Games, Olger Storm, Andrew Strait, Eric V, and Chris Webster. Thank you for being Master of Realm supporters. And for our Masters of the Multiverse, we got you covered as well. Keith Amon of The Monsters Know What They're Doing, Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Merrick Blackman, Evil John, DM Chad, Darren Chandler, Seth Eckel, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Nathan Fuller, The Mighty Jerd, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Chad Jackson, Brian King, Jim Klingler, a.k.a. DM Prime Mover, Chad Lynch, the Mathemagician, Eric Mengi, the Micro Ant, Sean Molly, Falcon Neal, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Vladimir Prenner from Croatia, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Scott Sand, Ross Sandberg, Andy Shockney, Krishna Simone Say, Joe Tyler, James Walton, and Graham Ward. Thank you so much. You can also support us by going to Apple Podcast or whatever means you do use to listen to this podcast and leave us a review. Five stars if you're feeling generous. Or you can go to YouTube and you can subscribe. Teos, you've been doing a lot of videos and writing and where can people find all of that goodness? Oof. Head to alphastream.org. From there, you can enjoy my latest series that I've started on the numbers that we got from BookScan on D&D, dissecting that and pulling it together. Uh, on Mastodon is alphastream at dice.camp. Where are you hiding, Sean? Oh, I am still on Twitter at Sean Merwin. I am on Blue Sky at Sean Merwin. I am on uh, tabletop.social as Sean Merwin. I am Sean Merwin no matter where I go. The show is also on mastodon on twitter on blue sky and of course on the youtube so we've made it we've made it through the dungeon master's guide we've learned everything there is to know about dungeon mastering and we are experts now so what are we going to do uh, we have to write the podcast mastering guide i'll start now <laughs> <laughs>